Okay, we uh, press on for at least a little while in uh, church history before I spend most of August and September overseas. Um, most of October in uh, Texas, and uh, anyways, it's going to be going to be crazy. But uh, we got to keep pressing on, um, and we come now to a uh, major topic, sort of the end of. Uh, topics in the early church, or relatively early church, sort of the last figure of what's frequently called the early church, even though, you know, once you get to the beginning of the 5th century, are we really in the early church? Uh, they certainly didn't view themselves that way, uh, but from our perspective, um, I guess it is all a matter of perspective. But um, that is an uh, individual probably uh, more, most often identified as the most influential person in uh, Western Christianity. The East is not overly enamored with this particular individual, and I refer, of course, to Augustine. And uh, we won't have any uh, arguments about the correct pronunciation of the name. Uh, if you want to call him Augustine, uh, that's okay with me, but Augustine flows a lot uh, easier than um, Augustine does. And uh, uh, interestingly enough, he was born into a Christian home in North Africa. It's unusual for us to uh, remember and to think about the fact that North Africa was, until the 8th century, a um, uh, primarily Christian place. It had been evangelized uh, in the first century and uh, uh, all across North Africa. That entire coast there had uh, become a primarily uh, Christian area. And he is born the 13th of November 354, so halfway through the fourth uh, century is the time of the birth of Augustine. Now, everybody here knows uh, his mother's name, uh, and uh, that's because you all have heard of Santa Monica, and Santa Monica simply means Saint Monica, and uh, Saint Monica was Augustine's mother. So that's where that comes from. You may not have uh, known that was the origination, but uh, in fact, I have to wonder how many people who live in Santa Monica have any earthly idea. Um, uh, same with Corpus Christi. I mean, how many people in Corpus Christi have a clue uh, what in the world that's about? But anyway, um, Monica was Augustine's mother, and uh, it has been frequently pointed out, I think appropriately over the years, that uh, here you have an example uh, from Augustine's own testimony of a godly woman who consistently prayed for her son, even though uh, her son became very wayward uh, uh, in his early life. Uh, and uh, he, of course, uh, credits that uh, faithfulness as very much a part of the means that God used to uh, bring him to, uh, to salvation. Uh, his was a nominal faith. Uh, he uh, left that faith in his teen years, uh, dabbled with this, that, and the other thing, and eventually became involved with a religion that had become, uh, it was fairly new religion, 
and it had become popular in the Roman Empire in um, the preceding hundred years before him, uh, known as Manichaeanism, a fellow by the name of Manny. Uh, and it was a conglomeration of Gnostic and Christian and other ideas, uh, basically uh, dualistic, uh, so the, the body-soul type thing, and, and uh, it was sort of a mishmash of, of, of things. Um, but because of its Gnostic elements, he couldn't rise very high in the ranks because he had a mistress um, by whom he had a son by the name of Adeodatus, uh, a gift from God. Uh, he taught rhetoric at uh, Carthage in, uh, of course, Carthage, yes. Oh. Well, these actually aren't the ones you bought me, but, uh, but they, they're still on top of the fridge, but uh, these, were, these were there, so. Uh, Those ones theoretically worked. I checked them last week, so we'll see. Well, the, the, it looks good, so, uh, uh, okay. So we're, we're talking about Augustine. Who is that strange woman that was hiding uh, I don't know. <laughs> Manichaeanism. Uh, and uh, what did I, I had said uh, 354, so born 354. I guess I have to write more things on the board um, then. Would you say his son's name was? Yeah, Adeodatus. Yes, yes. Manichaeanism and. Uh, Deodatus. Okay. So um, uh, he taught uh, rhetoric at Carthage, and it's hard for us to uh, remember just how, uh, again, how vitally important Carthage was. You know, when we think of North Africa, we think of Libya and places today that are rather backwards and primitive. Uh, but this was a, uh, a very major center of, of learning Carthage, uh, the, the wars with Rome, uh, you know, major, major military power, things like that, a very important place. So he taught rhetoric there in uh, 374, so only at 20 years of age. Um, and he also taught rhetoric in Rome uh, 10 years later. Uh, well, nine years in 383, and then moved to Milan in 384. Uh, somewhere during this period of time, he becomes disenchanted with Manichaeanism, uh, does not find what uh, he is searching for. And so in the summer of 386, you've probably, you know, this is probably one of the most famous conversion stories that you've uh, ever heard, so probably just repeating what you already know, but uh, there was a very, very famous preacher uh, around in these days, someone that we could have done a whole section on as well, uh, by the name of Ambrose. And by all accounts, Ambrose uh, is a... Uh, Oh, he's a bishop in Milan. He's a tremendous uh, speaker, tremendous uh, preacher. And being interested in rhetoric, 
in the ability to communicate clearly and forcefully um, and not <laughs> cheaply. Uh, I, I won't, won't di divert too far from the topic here, but it is fascinating that um, the idea of rhetoric, you know, we, when we talk about rhetoric today, it's normally a dismissive term. That's just, just rhetoric. Um, but rhetoric has always been a, an important element of classical study and teaching, the ability to speak and to, to convince people, but, but not to convince people cheaply, uh, but to utilize sound reasoning and argumentation and skills of communication uh, to convince people to do what is right and what is moral and what is ethical and so on and so forth. And, I can't help but think of a series of commercials I've been seeing uh, on television. I don't watch much television, but they've been on a certain news channel that uh, all news channels are filled with fake news these days, but some more than others. And uh, I've been thinking of these commercials that I've been seeing that are just the, the, the most obvious example of attempting to get people to do something that is actually evil, uh, filled with lies, and it's all based upon emotion. It's purely emotional. Well, rhetoric, rhetoric didn't ignore human emotion, but its focus was upon uh, formulating uh, philosophical, ethical, and moral arguments and communicating them with, with force and understanding. And um, not exactly something that is a major issue today. Unfortunately, people have discovered that the most effective way to impact the current uh, populace uh, is not with facts, argumentation, logic, uh, but with emotions. Because people today uh, feel that, uh, well, I'll give you an example. I, I did a program this week uh, where I reviewed played and reviewed uh, comments by a well-known Christian apologist by the name of William Lane Craig. Now, I have reviewed Dr. Craig's stuff for a long time. Uh, Dr. Craig is an evidentialist, or he calls himself a classical apologist, but he's a Molinist. Uh, he has a very synergistic uh, theological system, and as I point out, theology determines apologetics, and so uh, we've debated many of the same people in different contexts, and so, but we do so differently. We do so with different arguments, different approaches, and it's important that people understand why we have those differences. And uh, I've noticed a lot of people, I just don't know how, why you're so mean to Dr. Craig. And, and I'm like, why do, you, why do you use the term mean? And I'm starting to understand, even within the church, we've got this microaggressions thing going on. And if you, if you dare to disagree with someone, if you dare to, and I mean, I, I play him. I let him state his perspective, and then I critique it. And for a lot of people today, even though this was, this was just how things were done back in these days, this was part of rhetoric, this was part of debate. I think I've mentioned to you in the late 1600s in England, to get to your uh, second or third year of graduate work, and this would have been early 20s, in the age group uh, um, of, of people back then, 
uh, in the university system. Uh, to become a minister, uh, you had to not only be able to read the New Testament Greek, you had to be able to debate in Greek. Vast majority, I can't debate in Greek, and I've taught Greek for years. So, I mean, this was the, you know, just how high a level things have been in the past in comparison to today, where if you, if you even critique someone, well, you're being aggressive, you're being mean, you're being uh, violent, uh, you know, and that's what we see in our university system. Uh, and I'm sorry, but the universities have brought this on themselves. Um, when, you can, when you can have Richard Dawkins being kept from speaking <laughs> um, because of allegedly nasty things he's said about Muslims, uh, then you realize that we now live in a, in a, in a day of, of perpetual childhood. Uh, it really is. It's, it's perpetual childhood. Um, I, I cannot hear someone say something that would hurt my feelings, and therefore everyone must shut up and just say what I want to hear them say. It's, uh, scary because these people will eventually be in charge and uh, they plainly do not value something called the freedom of speech. Um, so anyways, all this is to, is to say that um, uh, Augustine, being a teacher of rhetoric, uh, may have been thinking, you know, I wonder if there's something to the Christian faith that I sort of walked away from as a child. Or in all probability, he just wanted to, he just heard of this, this, this man who could communicate with great force and clarity. So as a teacher of rhetoric, I'd like to see how this guy does what he does. And so in the summer of 386, he heard uh, Ambrose preach on the lusts of the flesh. And obviously, uh, as a man with a mistress, uh, with a mother that was praying for him, he obviously had to know that, you know, there had to be some type of conviction of sin going on here. And so as he is pondering what he heard uh, Ambrose preach, and obviously preach with sufficient uh, clarity that he understood the message, the story is told that he went into the garden of a villa, and as he was sitting there on the other side of the wall in the, in the next yard over, basically. He heard uh, children uh, playing. And uh, he heard one of them saying, Tale, lege, tale, lege, take, read, take, read. And there was a uh, Bible on a copy of the scriptures. So um, evidently must have been a Christian family on the table open to uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 14, uh, making no provision for the lusts of the flesh. And upon reading these words, um, Augustine is converted. He is uh, convinced of his sins. He uh, turns to Christ. And, and now by this point in time, uh, the tradition has developed, especially in the West, of baptism taking place at particular points in time uh, in the liturgical year, and especially around Easter. And so he is baptized Easter of 387. Uh, Easter of 387. And uh, likewise, uh, I'm not sure how old Adeodatus was at this point, but he had 
Deodatus uh, baptized as well. And what's interesting is um, Augustine, Augustine's Christian life does not start off in a bed of roses um, because he uh, decides to return to Carthage, to North Africa. And as they travel, Monica, his mother, Deodatus, I don't know what happened, honestly, to the, uh, uh, to the mistress, um, but both Monica and Deodatus die on the way to Carthage. And you might say, what, were they killed or something like that? You've got to remember. Uh, this was a different day. Uh, you did not have tomorrow. We did not have um, not only the sanitary conditions that we have, an understanding of microorganisms, uh, but you didn't have antibiotics, you didn't have so many things, and there were, there were just a lot of diseases that can kill mankind. You get in ships and things like that. It can be close quarters, there can be mice, and all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, so one of the first things that happens upon his conversion uh, is Augustine loses his, his mother and, uh, and his son uh, within a very short period of time uh, thereafter. Uh, so it does make you think about the fact that so much of fluffianity uh, that is uh, presented today um, is, you know, follow Jesus and your life is just going to be wonderful and uh, better roses and your teeth are going to be whiter than ever and uh, uh, that, that, that just amazing plague that, that afflicts so much of humanity of having one leg longer than the other. They're both going to be perfectly the same length and it's all going to be wonderful. And, and uh, this just has never been uh, an element of the Christian faith until recent days when we can all live like kings and queens. And in comparison to the vast majority of humanity of the past, we all do live like kings and queens. Um, we're pampered. We have more food than... than uh, vast majority of generations that have ever lived before us. And uh, um, so this, you know, you look at this situation and if Augustine had been converted uh, by a message of easy Christianity, losing your mom and your son within weeks or months of your conversion might make you go, eh, maybe this isn't really what was for me. But we just don't see that as a major element in, in the past because the, the call was to follow Christ and to repent of one's sins. And it was always within the context of the brevity of human life. Um, and we, we see that both in the New Testament as well as in, as in church history. And so when he arrives at Carthage, uh, you know, bury your mom and your, your, your son, and he went off to live as a monk. Um, went off into the monastic life, which was considered to be the high, you know, already at this point in time, this was considered to be a high spiritual calling. Um, but what happens, and uh, the only reason we know much about Augustine, uh, is because when the bishop of Hippo died, H-I-P-P-O, Hippo itself. Let's put, put it up here on the, on the board. I'll write it up here in green. Um, Hippo, North Africa. Not an animal, but a, a city. Um, 
when the bishop of, uh, of Hippo died, uh, Augustine was unwillingly elected to the office. Because, again, even in Rome up until the 11th century, I've got the date in here, we'll find it a little bit later on, up until the 11th century, I think, about 1050 or something, um, even the Bishop of Rome was elected by the people of Rome. And so there are a number of big names uh, in this time period who unwillingly uh, took the positions of authority that were theirs. And uh, this was the case with Augustine. He didn't want be to become bishop. He wanted to, uh, you know, it reminds me, it's, you, you think of Farrell and Calvin as well, when we get to the Reformation. Uh, Calvin didn't want didn't to stay in Geneva either. Uh, but there are times when you're sort of forced to do uh, things you don't want to do. And so uh, he becomes the bishop of, of Hippo. And this time period, the late, you know, the 390, um, so on and so forth, onward, uh, there are, as we're going to see, there are two major conflicts that he is engaged in. The first is going to be focused upon the church. Um, and then the second uh, will be upon the issue of uh, salvation. Um, so in the 390s, uh, one of the primary things he's focused upon, uh, we've already talked about, but we have a lot of visitors and it's been a little while, so let me just remind you of it. Um, he immediately, once he is put in the position of bishop, has to deal with the issue of the Donatist controversy. And um, the one I was given doesn't have any blue in it. I'm really disappointed by that, so I'm going to have to. It, it's really OK, uh, okay. but that's all right. So I can get the other one for you. Yeah, well, we'll, 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 we'll save them. All right. The Donatist controversy. And you will remember the Donatist controversy, I hope, uh, because of the fact that this was one of these results of persecution. And just to remind you what had happened is this is, it's had its origins, you know, this is a situation where Augustine's dealing with something that he had, he had nothing to do with. He just, he inherited the controversy. It went back into the time period of the great imperial persecution uh, between uh, 260 and, and 313. It was actually around, uh, right toward the end of that, in the, in the early 300s, uh, before the peace of the church in 313. And what had happened was, this takes us back to the ex opera operato, ex opera operanti stuff uh, in regards to the nature of sacraments. And uh, to remind you, what had happened is a, a man had been consecrated as a bishop, and one of the men who had laid hands upon him was accused of apostasy. He was accused of being a trotator. Now, what was a trotator? Someone who gave up the sacred scriptures to the Roman, to the Roman authorities. Right. So he was accused of having given up the scriptures to the Romans, and he said he didn't, and... And, and 
so on and so forth. Well, the hardliners who held, well, of the, of the two views, ex opera operato, ex opera operanti, the hardliners would hold to which of those two? Ex opera operanti. Aren't you all glad you've got Sean? Because you all can just sit back and just relax and not worry about anything because uh, you all know that Sean's just going to answer everything. So Sean, I can just have this little conversation here. I almost feel like it. He had his head down like that. Top. Um, yes, that's correct, Sean. Hermione. Um, uh, <laughs> a little story there in the backdrop. Uh, anyways, um, ex opera operanti was the idea that a sacrament was only valid if the one or ones, in this case, performing it are in a state of grace. So the, the effectiveness of the sacrament is dependent upon the people. Ex operanti is a participle, the one performing it. Versus the other perspective, which is ex opera operato, which becomes official Roman Catholic doctrine in later centuries uh, because of this controversy and because of Augustine. And that is that the sacrament is valid as long as it is done as the sacrament. It doesn't matter who performs it. The state of grace, the person performing it, doesn't matter. That's the difference between operanti and operato. And so uh, the hardliners would not follow the man who was ordained because they said he's not been validly ordained. And they become the donatists. And those who eventually would be of Augustine's camp. Uh, they call themselves Catholics, not Roman Catholics. They wouldn't have had any idea what Roman Catholic meant. Um, Augustine himself uh, becomes the primary originator of ex opera operato. Cyprian, a man honored as a martyr bishop in North Africa, uh, held the hardline perspective, ex opera operanti. So Augustine had to be very careful and how he dealt with the Donatists. Uh, this controversy, one of the reasons it was so important is because uh, in the days of Augustine, when the Donatists got together for a council, they had 700 bishops in, uh, present. And it was pretty much just a North African thing. So that's 700 churches in North Africa. And they would, uh, you could recognize their churches because they were, they were all whitewashed. They were all very white and pure because they were the pure hardliners over against the compromised Catholics, you see. And theologically, there wasn't all that much difference between them as far as worship and who God is or Christ is. There, there really wasn't all that much difference, but there was a uh, difference. That's not going to go, go on to the tape very well. Well, tape. <laughs> Who uses tape? Well, I don't know. That's just how we used to say things back when I was young. Back when I was young, and we always uh, um, uh, on the recording very well. But there was a snootiness, shall we say, amongst those who viewed themselves as holier than, than others. And it was a scandal to the Christian mind that you would have in one city multiple churches that are divided from one another. We drive past half a dozen churches of other denominations on the way to our own church, and it, it's just all we've ever known. 
but we need to realize that we're the weird ones, historically speaking, at that point. That historically, and this is going to become really important. Some of you know that um, uh, almost next month, in September, um, we're doing a Reformation tour in, uh, in Europe, primarily Germany. Wartburg Castle, uh, we're going to stand where, at the, where the, the Diet of Worms, unfortunately, the building's gone. So you have to sort of clean the, uh, clean the, the uh, leaves away from this one little plaque uh, where, where Luther stood and said, But we're going to visit Worms and the Wartburg Castle and Eisleben and, of course, uh, Wittenberg. And... Uh, uh, a lot of what I'm going to have to say as we talk about events in the Reformation during that tour is going to go back to the existence of what's called sacralism. Um, and it's the concept of the state church. And uh, sacralism really grew out of this, uh, you know, it was very connected to this scandal in the Christian mind of there being any kind of division um, that would exist in, the, in a city as far as you know, having the Donatists and, and the Catholics in one city. That's just, and all the way through to the time of Martin Luther, you know, the reason that we will visit a dungeon in the Wartburg Castle where an Anabaptist was imprisoned for eight years until he died um, 15 years after the Reformation uh, was because the Reformation was a sacral Reformation. Now there were, in that early period, there were people that went, I wonder if the church should be separate from the state. Hmm, seems so, because if it's not, it'll never really be a pure church. And Zwingli had that idea, Luther had that idea, but they couldn't see how it could possibly work. And it hadn't been that way for over a thousand years. So uh, remember, in 380-ish, uh, Theodosius had uh, proclaimed the Roman Empire, a Christian empire. So from that time onward, that's how people thought, and that's right before Augustine, Augustine's conversion. So um, that impacts his thinking his thinking as well. And so the Donatist controversy, uh, ex opera operato sacramentalism, this is, this is the early and first controversy of Augustine's life. Now, here's another big date. Well, here's a blue one. I wonder if it's a, it doesn't work. Decoy. <laughs> 410 AD. Now that's only, what, 85 years after Nicaea, right? Mm -hmm. So, what is so important about 410 AD? Everyone's looking at you. They're on their own. They're on their own. They're, I haven't said, so I'm just sort of, and, and, and you notice the kind 
instructor that I am, I'm not going to look over at the PhD historian uh, along the wall. Uh, there we go. All right. Whew. How high did your heart rate get on that, though? That's the question. <laughs> Uh, no, no, no. 410, Alaric the Visigoth sacks Rome. And you go, wow, we're supposed to know that as well as the Nice Council of Nicaea, huh? I'm not really sure what the. It's real easy for us to sort of go, oh, okay, why is that so important? But it really, really is important. Everyone in Europe at least around the Mediterranean, around the centers of what we would call Western civilization, um, in the great learning centers of Athens and Rome and places like that. Um, centuries have gone by, centuries have gone by, where at first Greece and then especially Rome had provided an incredible amount of stability. So much so that the idea of a world without Rome at its center um, was a frightening thing to many people. And historically, there's no question. Now, obviously, historians of Rome can trace the, the decline all the way from the days of Julius Caesar. Um, and there were many, many signs of the deterioration of the Roman Empire before 410. It's not like it's happened overnight. Um, this had been happening for a long time. People knew it had been happening for a long time. But until Rome itself, now Alaric didn't really, didn't really damage the city. Uh, it's, it's not like you know you had raping and pillaging and burning and 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 I mean there was much less, much 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 less damage to the city than anything Nero did, you know, the, the Roman fire and stuff like that. I mean, that, that was catastrophic in comparison to Alaric. But the point was that a foreign power, a, a not only pagan power, but a uh, barbarian power had sacked Rome. And the psychological impact as the news spread across the Mediterranean, both directions, was something you've got to, it, it's hard for us to begin to comprehend of just how much of a, a game changer this was. We, we today have such rapid exposure to such an overabundance of information, only a part of which is actually news, uh, that it's, it's hard for us to comprehend what it was like when the news came into Hippo um, that Rome had been sacked by the Visigoths. Uh, there weren't any pictures. There weren't any tweets. Uh, there was no video. Uh, no MP3 coverage, nothing like that. So everyone was left to sort of imagine what that looked like and what must have happened. And, and I'm sure there was probably some exaggeration in, in people's minds. But it shook to the core everyone's 
concept of what the future is going to look like um, and what civilization would continue to involve. Now we know it was just simply one step. Uh, we know that the, the center of power had been shifting for many decades before this from Rome to Constantinople. Um, and this would only accelerate that. And it is going to result in something extremely important, theologically speaking, which we'll talk about a little bit more when we talk a little bit more about the papacy. But with the decline of the secular, if we call it secular, that has different meaning now than it did then, but non-church governmental authority in Rome itself, this left a power vacuum. And into that power vacuum stepped the Bishop of Rome. And so part of the politicalization, um, part of the development that eventually becomes the idea of the, uh, the sun and the moon, the sun's the papacy, the moon is any type of worldly government, kings, emperors, so on and so forth, and one's reflective of the light of the other, and, and all the conflicts we're going to see in the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, really 11th, 12th centuries, um, uh, between a, a massively ascendant papacy, politically speaking, and various emperors and kings and things like that, has its origin back here. Uh, the Bishop of Rome would not have been able to take those positions. You wouldn't have had the development of the Roman Catholic papacy uh, had Rome remained the center of, of authority. Uh, but 410 marks uh, a major turning point there. And what's interesting is uh, this was only 30 years after the proclamation of the Roman Empire to be a Christian empire. And so guess what the pagans did? The pagans blamed it on Christianity. Uh, in fact, they had an argument. As long as Rome had been focused upon serving the gods, worshiping the gods, sacrificing to the gods, Rome had been the ascendant power all, all through her domains. But the decline had pretty much marked the rise of Christianity. You could, you could trace decline back to the first century and, gee, what else goes back there? Christianity. And so the pagans blame the sack of Rome on Christianity. And as a result, Augustine began writing one of what would become absolutely classic works uh, and it is, as a result, it is entitled The City of God. He starts writing it in 410. He doesn't finish it, but he starts writing it. He, I mean, he does finish it eventually, but he doesn't finish it in 410. Um, he is responding to the pagan accusations that it's because of Christianity that Rome has fallen to the state that it has. And Augustine's argument is it's not because of Christianity, it's because of sin. Rome has fallen because of sin. And he says there is no enduring city on earth, but there is a city of God composed of righteous men and women that is eternal. And so the kingdom of God 
is not to be associated with a particular political entity, no matter how grand that political entity might be, no matter how long it might last, no matter how powerful it might be. I think there's a lot of folks in our land today that need to read the City of God. Um, uh, his point is that empires will come and go. Uh, the kingdom of Christ will endure and it will survive whatever takes place in, uh, in this world. And this book made Augustine famous. Up till then, he was just simply the Bishop of Hippo. Once this book uh, is published, and again, remember, that's just handwritten over and over and over again, but um, it, uh, it makes him a, a famous name all across uh, the Mediterranean world. It gave a Christian view of history because many, the pagans, uh, they had a different view. Uh, they, there was a man by the name of Thucydides, and I'm not going to write Thucydides, I'm sorry, but... Uh, that's correct. All right. Thucydides, and Thucydides as a Greek historian, um, Greek and Roman historian, um, it was very common to view history as, a, as cyclical, as just repeating a cycle over and over and over again. You know, just a circle. Now, it, this is a pretty cool example of where church history has impacted each person in this realm. Because we are all children of Western culture. And we don't think of history as a cycle, as a circle. None of us do. Um, what you were taught in school was to think of history chronologically and progressively as a linear line moving from one point to another point. Um, we have certain things in history, you know, birth of Christ, you know, uh, before Christ, Anno Domini, year of our Lord. Um, and that only makes sense if you're moving in a particular direction and not going in circles. And the city of God, uh, probably the single most important work that broke down the cyclical understanding of history and replaced it in the broad thinking of Western Christianity and hence Western culture uh, of history as a line. It has a, history has a meaning, it has a beginning, it has an end, it's linear, and you and I think that way because Augustine wrote that book, basically. Now that's a simplistic way of putting it, but um, we, you, you may not realize, uh, you may not have known when you walked into the room this morning that your way of viewing history and the progression of time and things like that had ever been impacted by a guy named Augustine. Uh, but it was. And uh, so your, your way of thinking was impacted by events in 410 when Alaric the Visigoth uh, sacked Rome and what that resulted in.
that's sort of a really neat practical sort of, oh, I guess this really does have something to do with how I live and so on and so forth. Um, because again, the less you know about the influences that have formed the matrix in which you live and think, the less you can analyze those things and the less you can recognize the forces that have formed your way of, of thought. So uh, because of this, Augustine becomes a much sought after teacher, leader in the church. A lot of his correspondence that we have, his letters are really important uh, to us today, uh, come as a result of, of this and uh, as a result of his writing this. Now, in 397, I'm not sure we have time for this, but Go back a little bit here to uh, 397. You have the Council of Carthage. 397. And one of, uh, one of the important, uh, another of the many important things um, that we trace back to Augustine has to do with disputes over the canon of Scripture. I think I mentioned to you before that Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, uh, in 367, I think it was, uh, put out uh, his 39th Festal Letter where he announced the date of, of Easter and in the process also listed the 27 books of the New Testament in the order and content as we have today. This is the earliest full canon uh, that we have uh, written down. And Augustine and Jerome, Jerome is, I believe, the next fellow that we will get to here uh, eventually. Um, yes, Jerome is next. Um, Augustine and Jerome disagreed over the issue of the canon of Scripture. And the reason, this is only in regards to the Old Testament, not the New, the reason they disagreed was because Augustine only knew a small amount of, of Greek. He was primarily a Latin speaker and writer. Uh, did not know Hebrew. And as a result, he thought that the, what we call the apocryphal books, which Roman Catholics call the deuterocanonical books, uh, were, he thought they were part of the Hebrew canon. Because everybody recognized Romans 3.2 says it was to the people, children of Israel that the, the, the oracles of God had been committed. So what the Jews thought about the Old Testament canon was important. And Augustine thought they accepted those books. Jerome knew better, recognized they did not. And they had uh, a written correspondence and argument over this particular issue. And the Council of Carthage, which is under Augustine's control, basically, he is the biggest name there, uh, they put out a canon list which includes the apocryphal books. And so a lot of people point to that and say, see, there, there you go, there's, 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 your, there's, there's your proof. Um, at the same time, Jerome's saying no. So uh, there's a long story in regards to that. But Here's an example of, of where someone had a wrong idea, ends up, you know, when, when Augustine had good ideas, ends up influencing people. When he had bad ideas, ends up influencing people 
as well, the same thing as the Donatist controversy. But we'll pick up at that point because we still got the Pelagian controversy, and uh, I actually just discovered down below, I've actually got a, a few more things to throw out about uh, Donatist controversy as well. Need to move that in my notes so it's a little bit easier to get to. But anyways, that's uh, just the start of Augustine. Augustine's gonna take us a few weeks, I think, to uh, get to because uh, rather, rather important name. But gone over time, let's close the word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time, the freedom you've given to us to once again look into the past, the history of what you've done with your people. We ask that we would once again be wise in hearing these things, learning from the good and from the bad as well. Continue to guide us even as we go into worship now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>